You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. We have been in this series called Made for More, and we've been asking this question. What am I made for? And we've uh, searched the scripture for that answer. There's actually a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes that tells us what we were not made for. And uh, you remember uh, Solomon, who wrote that book, tried everything under the sun to find an answer to that question. Couldn't find anything. He just said, it is all vanity. It's all meaningless. That little Hebrew word, hevel. And he just looked at everything. He's like, what the hevel? What? It's just like nothing really satisfies in this world. And so... Uh, one of the things that we've been learning is that we were made to gather. We were not made for isolation. Uh, and we were, we were not made uh, for stagnation. We were made to gather. We were made to grow. Last week we learned that we are not made to sit and get. We were made to go. The Lord wants to send us to get the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime. That's our passion around here. That's why we make disciples. And so today it brings us to this. We were made to glorify. We were made to glorify God. We were made for God. We were not made for ourselves. The mission statement of Harvest Bible Chapel is something that helps us remember that we were made to glorify God. And as a matter of fact, if you go to our webpage, the first thing that pops up and slaps you in the face is our mission statement. We want you to know why we exist. Why does Harvest Bible Chapel exist? Say it with me. Glorifying God and making disciples. The way that we glorify God is making disciples. Making the disciples is not the end. Facilitating making disciples is not the end. Giving and serving and sacrificing and sending and going is not the end. All of those things are the means to the end. The end is the glory of God. And we find that little word glory in this verse that we've chosen as the theme verse for this series. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 says this, It is all for your sake. And so these were missionaries. These were church planters. The Apostle Paul that's writing this verse is he's telling us that every hardship, every trial, every snake bite, every shipwreck was all for your sake. And it's worth it so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Notice the people aren't the end. The people are the means to the end. The end is the glory of God. Thanksgiving is not the end. Thanksgiving is the means to the end. The end is the glory of God. So we talk a lot about glory in church. We've sung about glory. I don't even know if you noticed it. You probably raced by some of those lyrics so fast you didn't even notice the word glory. We need to answer the question this morning, what is the glory now, the word glory is an interesting word. If you do a word study uh, of that word, um, you find it in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a Hebrew word um, pronounced kabod. Have you experienced the kabod? Every time you come to church, our desire is to encounter the kabod of God. The word means wait. When you encounter the glory of God, 
you should feel the weight of glory. I got to tell you, Andrea can tell you the last 48 hours I have been under the weight because my job this morning is to explain to you as best I can the kabod, something that is absolutely unexplainable. And I have felt the weight. And if I do my job right this morning and you do your job right this morning, you should feel some of the weight of the kabod of God. Maybe even so much that the weight would get so heavy that you couldn't even stand under the weight of the glory, but it would actually bring you to your knees under the heaviness of the glory of God. And so I want you to see that here from uh, this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at a lot of different Scripture this morning, but I wanted to tell you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And we're going to look at it here in verses 33 through 36. Let me just read it. And this is the Apostle Paul. It's feeling the weight of the kabod. And he says, oh, don't miss the O of the kabod. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Say, nobody. Or who has been his counselor? Nobody. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Nobody. For from him and through him and to him are all things... To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's try to answer this question as best we can. What is the glory? What is the kabod? What is this weightiness? Um, at its core, it, it means supreme in quality and abundant in quantity. It is far superior to nature. It is far superior to anything physical, anything you could see, hear, touch, smell, or taste. It's to be experienced in supreme perfection. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about His absolute moral perfection in all things. Not only is it supreme in quality, it is abundant in quantity. God has so much glory, it's more than I can comprehend. It is more than I can explain. It's more than I can experience in a lifetime. It will take me an eternity with Him to enjoy the abundant quantity of God's kabod, His glory. Let's put it this way. Glory is the manifestation of God's presence. Now, I really try to avoid multisyllabic words in the sermon. But this word manifestation is one we need to know. When we talk about God's presence, we understand that God is everywhere present at the same time. How many of you believe that? God is omnipresent. But He is not everywhere in the same sense that... How many of you believe that God is here with us in church as we have His Word open, as we're singing praises to Him? How many of you believe He's here in a way that He's not at the mall right now? Okay? That's the cultivated presence of God. As we give Him glory, do you know what happens? 
as the glory goes up, what happens? The glory comes down. The manifestation of God's presence is simply this. It's God on display. You see, we know that God is invisible. We can't see God with our visible eyes, but God has graciously made himself known to us as a loving act. Now, I have three daughters, and um, we've had this conversation about what happens when a boy asks them for their phone number. What the boy wants is a manifestation of the presence of one of my daughters. He wants to get to know them, and so we have a strategy for that. And uh, I've just told them, give them my phone number. And... um, (laughs) and they will get a manifestation of me in their presence, okay? That, that's the way that works. So, um, but don't you want to know more of the glory of God? Moses was one that really was really one of the first men to get a self-disclosure of the glory of God. At the burning bush it happened, but then later on in the book of, of Exodus in chapter 33, Moses said, show me your Glory! I want to know your name. I want to fellowship with you as a friend, face to face with God. Now, you will never see God physically with your eyes, but God loves to disclose who he is, to make himself known. The display of God, the self-disclosure of God. Now, if that all sounds a little spooky and weird to you, um, welcome to Christianity. It's all about being related to this invisible God, even though he exists outside of time and space. He loves me so much. He's manifested. He's made himself known to those of us who are constrained by time and space. And when he does that, do you know what you experience? You experience just a bit of the weight of the glory of God. And you don't even have to be in church to do that. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is go outside and look up in the sky because Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. If you didn't have a Bible, if you didn't have a preacher, if you couldn't go to church, you could still experience a touch of the glory of God by simply looking up in the sky and having your mind blown with how small you are in this universe. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Do you know what's happening? God is shouting to us that he is glorious. And the weight of that fact ought to stop us in our tracks to say, God, I want to know more of your glory. Show me your glory. The glory of God is the manifestation of God's presence. James McDonald says it this way. He says, um, the glory of God is that uh, is what emanates from God. Think of it this way. As wet is to water, as light is to bulb, as heat is to flame, Glory is to God. It's that which can be known of God. It is God on display, the manifestation of God's presence. Now, the manifestation of God's presence is simply God's responsibility. And He loves us so much that in grace, He discloses Himself. 
The second way we're going to describe glory is this. Glory is the magnification of God's person. If the manifestation of God's presence is God's responsibility, the magnification of God's person is my responsibility. I was made to glorify God. It is my supreme purpose for existence. If glory is the display of God, secondly, it is my delight in God. It's my enjoyment of God. It's not only when the glory comes down, but when the glory comes down and I get a fresh revelation of who God is, then the glory goes up as I magnify the person of God. Now, it's not too much of a stretch for us to think, you know, why, why do you exist? I exist to glorify God. That's what it tells us in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why were you created? It is not to make money. It is not to enjoy marriage. It is not to play football. It's not to consume food. All of those are good, but they're not your ultimate purpose. You get married for the glory of God. You stay married for the glory of God. You raise your children for the glory of God. You don't kill your children for the glory of God. You obey your parents for the glory of God. You play football for the glory of God. You eat Krispy Kreme donuts for the glory of God. It's a weighty experience. But it's not as good as God. I was created for God's glory. Everybody get it? Now, most of us would know that. You'd probably get that on the test. But here's, here's the mind-blowing reality that John Piper has reminded all of us pastors and theologians of. Not only do I exist for God's glory. Are you ready for it? You can't even handle this. God exists for God's glory. Somehow in the church, we thought that somehow God exists for me. Well, at least we treat Him like that. God, would you make my life easier? God, would you take away cancer? God, would you make my, my wife nicer? Because I know you're up there. You're all, you're all about me, right? Where did you pick up that in the Bible? Do you know what God is doing all day, every day? He is living for His glory. He is acting for His glory. And He created you for Him. He doesn't exist for you. You exist for Him. The reason we know that is just five verses, uh, six chapters later in Isaiah, we read this in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, not yours, for my name's sake, I defer anger. I, how many of you are glad that God defers anger? Do you know He doesn't do that for you? He does that for Him. So that He would get glory. For my name's sake, I defer anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? For my glory I will not give to another. 
These verses echo six times that what God does, He does for Himself. We should glorify God because that's what God does. God glorifies Himself. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound a little selfish to you? What if I walked into my home and called a family meeting and said, look, I just want, I want everybody to know that today I'm going to spend my entire day glorifying myself. How's that going to go over in the family? Not great. But what if God calls a family meeting and steps in front of us and says, I want you to know that everything I'm going to be doing today, everything that you see happening in your world and in your life, I'm doing it all for my glory. Does that sound selfish to you? What's the difference between God and me? God's glorious, Trent's not. As a matter of fact, it is the most loving thing that God could do to create you for His glory. You know why? Because one of the glorious attributes of God is love. And He created you so that He could display love to you for His glory. He doesn't love you because you're lovable. He loves you because He is gloriously loving. And every time He loves a dirty, rotten sinner like you, do you know what He gets? He gets glory. And you know what you get? You get grace. God is so glorious and he does it all for his own sake. God is a very God-centered God and it doesn't make him selfish at all because he is supremely glorious. Glory is what inspires praise. Glory is what inspires praise. Now, um, let me ask you this. What is your best thing? Everybody's got a thing that you're best at, okay? Some of you are incredibly intelligent. You got all those little ribbons and extra things on your graduation robe that the rest of us didn't get. And, and you know what happened? You got, you, know, you got to go across the stage, and, and when, you, when those attributes of you were announced, everybody stood back and applauded. Some of you are not very smart, but you're, you're a good ball player, and you're athletic. And do you know what happens? I mean, they build stadiums for people like you so that the smart people can come and watch you do things they can't do. And what do we do? You do something incredibly athletic and we, we that's incredible, fantastic. Sometimes we raise our hands. Sometimes we shout and we sing. Looks a lot like worship, doesn't it? You know what's happening? You're inspiring our praise and we are applauding the best thing about you. Now, some of you are not all that smart and you're not athletic, but you are good looking. <laughs> and you wear it well. And we applaud you. And we, we, we make movies with you. And, and we put you on magazines and things like that. Some of you are not that smart, not that athletic, and you're not very good looking. But you are a great shopper, and that's your best thing. I mean, you, you do that really well. Some of you watch TV, awesome. You can do that. I mean, so everybody's got something great that somebody steps back and is like, that is just the best part of you. What is that? Do you know what that is in you? That's your glory. And it inspires praise. But people 
that don't see God is glorious, do you know what they spend their time doing? They redirect their praise to less glorious things. And they spend hour after hour after hour watching the pretty people in the movies. And they spend hour after hour after hour watching the athletic people play with balls. And God fails to get the glory that is due His name. Because you are inspired by less glorious things. The Olympics and ESPN and stadiums are built for the glory of athletes and movie theaters and Netflix and concert halls are built for the glory of artists and musicians. Universities and high schools and even elementary schools exist for the glory of education and intelligence, but the glory of God exceeds them all. He brings more of a sense of all than the greatest achievements of man ever portrayed in a concert, a theater, or a stadium. Don't let your heart get trapped by what you think is glorious and miss the glory of God. Let it bring you to your knees. How glorious God is. Glory is a Christian's ultimate answer to the question, why? If I ask you, um, why did you get up in the morning? This answer always works. For the glory of God. Why did you go to work today? Answer, for the glory of God. Why did you go to school today, teenager? Crickets in the teenage section. It's like, I'm not quite sure the school exists. The correct answer is for the glory of God. Why does this church exist? Why do we go on missions? For the glory of God. Why would we want to expand some square footage around here? Answer? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. That's why we do it. Did you know? That one day, the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. That's what Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says. For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, John Piper says it this way. Missions exists... Because worship does not. Just think about that for a second. Do you understand that right now, there are places on the earth that have no knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There are places where there is not glory going up to God. That's why missions exist. We have to go tell them how glorious our God is. Missions is not ultimate, Piper says. Worship is. And wherever you find weak worship, you find weak missions. Weak giving to missions. Weak obedience. Weak passion. 
And so it is all about the knowledge of the glory of God getting to the ends of the earth so God can get from the people he created there that which he created them for. The glory of God. What is glory? Let's put it this way. Sum it up as simply as I know how to. Glory is the revealed excellence, supremacy, and perfection of God. I don't, I don't know how to say it any simpler than that. The weight of God's excellence, the weight of God's supremacy in all things, and the weight of God's absolute moral perfection. And the more of the glory of God you see, the more you are changed under the weight of it. What is the glory? Here's another question. Let's try to answer that. Why should I glorify God? I think I can answer it this way. Because God is glorious. Let's go back here to Romans chapter 11 where we started. Look again in verse 33. What's the first word in verse 33 of Romans chapter 11? Oh, do you know what is missing from so much of our worship? The O. Oh. Either you will have an O oh in your worship or you will have a yawn. And whenever the O oh is missing, you lose the weight of the glory of God. Why should I glory in God, because God is absolutely glorious. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he's just finished the most incredible explanation of the sovereign purposes of God in salvation. And he comes to the conclusion, and it's as if he steps back and he just raises his hand and he shouts with all of his might, Oh, the riches! Oh, the depth of the riches! He's... Uh, uh, what is so glorious about God? Well, think about, think about the glory of God's riches. That means that God is supremely valuable. That God is to be treasured, not just studied, but treasured above all. The fact that he has a glory in his riches means that he is worth more than anything it would ever cost you to love him, to follow him, to serve him, to obey him. He's worth all of it. He's worthy of your attention. He's worthy of your time. He's worthy of your talent. He's worthy of your money. He's worthy of your affirmation. He is worthy of your enjoyment. He is worthy of your worship above all other earthly treasure. Oh, the glory of God's riches. He goes on and says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom. Oh, the glory of God's wisdom. That means that God does whatever he pleases and every decision God makes is wise. Every decision God makes is right. In fact, God is so wise in everything that he does that something more wise could not even be imagined or conceived other than what God has done. So whenever you see God doing something that you don't understand or can't explain, you can be assured, if you have experienced His glory, 
that God has everything under control. Oh, the glory of God's wisdom. He goes on, the depth of his riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the glory of the knowledge of God. That means that his mind is more full of information in all the books, in all the libraries, in all of the world. He knows more than Siri, Alexa, and Google Home combined. God's mind is filled with more data than all of the information on all the servers in the cloud on the internet. All of that information makes what God knows look like a first grade reader. Oh, the glory of the knowledge of God. Not just macro knowledge, but micro knowledge. God knows you. God knows what troubles you. God knows what you care about. God knows what you can't figure out. God knows what you did last week. He knows what you're thinking about right now. He knows what's going to happen next month. So why are you worrying? Because you are not living under the weight of the glory of God. Oh, the glory of the knowledge of God. God has never needed a counselor. That's what it goes on in verse 34. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? God's never looked at a situation and said, hmm, I'm going to have to get some advice. I, I have to bring in a consultant. Um, I, I just, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. It's been said many times before, but has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? Oh, the glory of God's knowledge. How about the glory of God's judgments? He goes on and says that. How unsearchable are his judgments. God is the judge of what is right and wrong, true and false, good and evil. God is the absolute standard of moral excellence. God doesn't change his mind about his judgments. Whatever God judged to be true 5,000 years ago is still true today. He doesn't take opinion polls. He doesn't change his opinion upon anything based on what's going on on the earth. He never gets a better idea than he had the day before. He is constant. He is unchanging. Oh, the glory of God's judgments. And one day, you and I will stand before him as judge to the degree that we have lived our life according to what God says has, is right is the degree to which we will be judged. And to the degree to which we have lived our life outside the boundaries of God's judgment, we will be judged. Oh, the glory of God's judgment changes the way that I live. And he goes on, he says, how inscrutable are his ways. Oh, the glory of God's eternal ways, his eternality. The ways of God have never changed. Oh, the glory of thinking about the fact that, that God never had a beginning. No one created God. God is the great uncaused cause of all things. 
He's not dependent upon anyone or anything else for his existence. And yet everything in existence is completely dependent upon God for their existence. And God will never have an end. He has no rival that will ever threaten his existence. He will never become extinct. And God will never get an upgrade. God is not improving. God is not developing. You cannot improve absolute perfection. He is eternally forever perfect. Oh, the glory of God's eternality. We get down to the end in verse 35. It says, who has given him a gift that he may be repaid? Uh, if you thought you were doing God a favor like by being in church today, no. He's like, if I go to church, maybe God will treat me better this week. No. God doesn't owe you anything. And yet... You owe him everything. That's the glory of God's grace. At his very nature, he's a gracious God that loves to give good gifts to people. That's why in verse 36, it says, for from him. Everything I have comes from him. It all still belongs to him. God owes no one anything. He loves to give good gifts to bad people. He loves to love people. He loves to forgive people. He loves to give life and breath and thought and creativity to people who don't deserve any of them. Oh, the glory of God's grace. And then the glory of God's power. Again, verse 36, for from him and then through him. That's the display of God's power. Everything I need comes through him. When you're running low on power, when you're running low on strength, when you're running low on the ability to resist temptation, do you know where you get the power to accomplish that? You get it through God. Everything you need comes through Him. And then the glory of God's purpose from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. God's purpose is that all things point to Him. Everything I see points to him. Everything I experience points to him. It's all for God's glory. I live my life to glorify God. I spend my money to glorify God. I save my money. I give my money to glorify God. I work. I go to school for the glory of God. I stay married. I stay loving. I stay changing and transformed all for the glory of God. That's what's so glorious about God. Now, that's good news and bad news. Here's the bad news. Romans 3.23 tells us what sin is. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've got some glory. The truth of the matter is we are all created in God's image. We all fall short of God's glory. God created us to be glorious, and yet we have such a lightweight understanding of His glory that we sin in many ways all through the day, all through our lives, because we don't treat God as glorious. That's what it means to fall short of the glory of God. And one day we'll stand before this glorious God and we'll have no excuse for why we fell short of the glory of God. That's bad news. Here's the good news. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There was one man who didn't fall short of the glory of God. He was the God-man, Christ Jesus. John 1.14 says, We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only Son of God. Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God. If you want to see God, you have to see Jesus. He was the ultimate manifestation of the presence of God. He came to be one of us. He lived a life that was glorious because our life was so less glorious than God. And the truth of Scripture is this. If you try to step into the presence of God to experience His glory without a shield, you will be incinerated. That's the story of the Bible. So you need a shield. You know what the shield is? Is Jesus. He is the mediator between a glorious God and the inglorious you. Because He is the radiance of the glory of God. Are you in Christ today? If you are in Christ, you have seen His glory. Now let me ask you this question. Why can some people sit and listen to a message like this and feel the weight of God's glory. And other people be checking Facebook on their phones and more impressed with the glory of whatever happening out there than what we just experienced here. Why can some people weep through a message like this and other people sleep through a message like this? The scripture tells us. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, actually chapter 4. It says this. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. You ever, it doesn't happen much anymore, but a, a bride at a wedding might wear a veil. And I, I guess the idea is we don't want, we, we don't want to see it, her in all of her glory until it's that right moment where the veil comes up. <gasps> oh, you're so beautiful, so glorious, right? Well, here's, here's what happens in a spiritual sense. Until you see Jesus Christ in all of His glory, it's as if you have a veil on. You can't quite see how glorious He is. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's bad news. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you know what's happening right now? As I've done my best to try to preach about the glory, Satan has been doing his best to keep you from seeing it. He's trying to blind you. He's trying to convince you. It, God is not that glorious. There's so many other glorious things. Did you see the closing ceremonies? I mean, those are glorious things. That's what Satan's trying to do. That's why so much of that is filled with pagan religion. It's trying to divert your attention from the glory of God. Scripture goes on and says this, For God has said, Let light shine out of the darkness. And He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For those of us that know Christ, by His grace, He has come and turned the light switch on and helped us to see 
how glorious He is and how awful our sin is in His presence. And it brings a weight to each one of us. Do you see it? Can you see it? Maybe for the first time, some of you have seen it today. You can't just walk away from it. You have to let the glory bring you to your knees until you repent of sin. You turn your life over to Christ and you say, God, from this moment on, I want to live for your glory. It was what I was made for. I was made for more than myself. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Would you just sit there for a moment under the weight of God's glory? Maybe your response is just to praise Him, to worship Him, to thank Him for His glory. Maybe you need to turn right now from something that you've been giving your glory to. Let's don't race past this moment. Just be quiet here for a minute and let the Spirit of God speak to you. If you're feeling that weight right now, you may just want to slip to your knees. You may want to come to this altar. You can kneel in God's presence. At the end of each of our services, we always have pastors available to pray with you. I want you to leave out of here knowing that you are in right relationship with our glorious God. If you've been living your life in a way that doesn't reflect the glory of God, Trust that God would open your eyes to see His worth, His value, and that you would treasure Him above all things. Lord Jesus, I pray that um, each of us would live our lives in view of Your glory. Thank You for opening our eyes, the light that was shining in in our hearts. I pray that You would continue to show us more of Your glory. God, change us, transform us, under the weight of that glory. Thank you for your grace that shields us and even transforms us from one glory into another glory. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.